I'm really happy to be meeting with you today and talking about this topic. If you heard my brief comments last night, this topic of diversity is truly one that is very dear to my heart uh, because if you didn't hear me last night, I was a refugee as a child and an immigrant and finally got to the United States, which of course uh, was the promised land. And uh, then we were sent very shortly after that to South America, to Bolivia. Anyone here from Bolivia? Well, my father was the first director of the college that grew to be the university that is today. But even at 10 years old, an incident occurred that I remember to this day. There was an American missionary who had learned Spanish well enough to preach in it. But of course, countries, uh, many, many countries have indigenous populations with their own languages, so he needed a translator. So he was preaching and watching the audience, and he had this translator. And because I have trained or spoken or lived in more than 90 countries many times, I have to speak through a translator. So, you know, you watch. Uh, are the responses at the right time? Are people laughing when they should be or smiling? And he noticed that something was not quite right. So he stopped and whispered to his translator, are you translating what I'm saying? And the man innocently looked up at him and said, no, pero yo sé que la gente necesita. No, but I know what the people need. <laughs> so I have never forgotten that incident about appropriateness about understanding the wonderful differences. And one of the reasons that I was pleased to be able to spend time with you this morning is because our church has grown very diverse in the United States, never mind the rest of the world. But at the same time, there's an interesting phenomenon going on in giving to the church, as well as giving to other causes outside of the church walls, your offering and tithe. And as we study how people choose to be generous, those two ways of giving have grown to be parallel. People want to know what happens with their money. I'm a preacher's kid, as you probably already guessed. In my dad's day, Long ago, he could say the Lord said to give, and people would give. They were generous. They didn't ask questions. Well, that has all changed. Where people want to know what happens their money, and as I go around the North America Division and helping organizations, people say, well, what do you do with my tithe? What do you do with my offerings? And at the same time, People ask the same questions about organizations outside of the four walls of the church. Well, this has been very interesting to me, but now that I have depressed you with that news, I want to give you the good news. 
Indiana University School of Philanthropy, where I still do some work and I've worked for many, many years, they have the Lake Institute for Faith and Giving. Now think about this. We are so fortunate in the United States that we have a recognized emphasis as well as respect for faith organizations. Now the reason I'm telling you this is because from 50 to 70 percent of giving choices are based on people's faith values. Now that's the good news, isn't it? However, to get zeroing in on my topic today, it's very important for us to understand the differences in giving. I'm a refugee from Estonia. Estonians were in the forefront of breaking away from the Soviet Union, very independent-minded, not without a heart, but more, you have a problem, go take care of it. Not heartless, just, okay, I'll help you take care of it. Whereas I grew up in Bolivia, where very frankly, the Catholic Church had a lot to do with getting people into the habit of giving, even outside of the church. So our cultural differences, not only, now that you know just a tiny bit about me, our cultural differences should be valued. But at the same time, when you are raising money for such wonderful causes as I see represented here, and that's one of the reasons I like to come, even though I'm with the North America Division, I like to come to ASI because I see some of these causes that help people around the world. But the matter of giving, philanthropy, is a matter of inclusivity. Do you know what the number one reason around the world is why people give? When I go teaching all over the world and we do an exercise, why do people give? Why don't they give? Because they want to make a difference. And I think it's a beautiful factor in us humans. But unless we respect some of the differences of why people give, understanding their roots, and you know, very often, as I have seen organizations, people cross over cultural barriers and cross over religious barriers to focus on a cause that means something to them. So what I'm going to do today is share some principles about understanding other cultures, about what do we watch for when we raise funds. And uh, Audie, if you would come back up here and make sure I stay on time, because I want to give you enough opportunities for you to share your experiences, your thoughts, any research that you know, because I look over this, and please, Audie, would you use your phone and take a picture? Because I really like the diversity that's represented here, and I believe that we have a great deal to share. I think I have until noon. Am I correct? Is that what your expectations are? All right, our expectations match. Okay, and I'm happy to share this PowerPoint with you, if you wish. I also have my business cards here. Uh, Derek, would you mind passing out my business cards? Uh, if you're not going to write me, don't take one, please, because I may not have enough. But I'm happy to share this PowerPoint with you because I really hope that you will make an effort to spread this information as well. 
the respect for differences, understanding that people will give if they're involved, if they care about your cause. Uh, let me tell you one more quick thing before I launch into the topic itself. Remember 2008 when we had an economic downturn? And that was one of the times when giving to nonprofits went down. But you know how people made choices? It depended on how the organization treated them. Up to 65% of people cycle out of giving to a cause because of how it treats them. And that includes respect for our differences. I believe the differences that we are, even in this room, experiencing are beautiful. It's one of the things I love about my adopted country. But sometimes we don't take them very seriously. So let's proceed. One thing that we need to remember, that our cultural perceptions at times are very surface and we make judgments. I get a kick out of being, let's say, in a restaurant and I hear Spanish around me. And because I don't really look like Spanish was my fourth language before I was 10 years old, uh, they go ahead and chatter in Spanish and uh, then suddenly I'll speak to them in Spanish and it's a lot of fun to see the mild shock on their faces. We make these judgment calls about people's cultures, maybe because of something we saw on TV, maybe something that we have experienced, maybe sometimes a negative aspect. But our perceptions frequently are the tip of the iceberg. Now another aspect of that, the tip of the iceberg, is that it's a beginning if we treat it right to understanding those differences. Then we delve into more what are your cultural aspects of giving? And before I forget, I'm going to pass around this book. It is really only one of its kind, and I have a website where we keep this topic alive month by month, diversityandphilanthropy.com. So I would encourage you to look at that also. I'm going to pass this book around. Uh, please ensure I get it back at the end. But you will find more information about this on the website. So what we're going to do is to look positively today at the tip of the iceberg to give you some concepts, some thoughts about how to delve deeper. So some of the biases that we experience, and I've experienced these as I have grown up in many different cultures before I went to college, Sometimes the invisibility. I know that when I work outside of the Adventist church and people develop boards, sometimes they say, well, we should have this and we should have this and we should have this. But maybe we don't give people who are different from our organization the right kind of voice. Give them an opportunity to really be a benefit to our organizations. Then there's stereotyping. We do that with professions, too. Uh, my only brother is an accountant. And we love to teach each other, uh, I'm sorry, tease each other, because you know there are plenty of jokes about fundraisers. And I certainly can find plenty of jokes about accountants. Well, we can do it because we're 
very close. But stereotyping, so everybody's this way, everybody's that way. We need to be careful that we don't stereotype, that we see it only as a first beginning of understanding differences. Imbalance, fragmentation, isolation, and especially linguistic bias. I, uh, a few years ago, I brought a group of my own relatives over from Estonia, knowing they could never afford to get here. They wanted to go play in the ocean. Now, Estonia is surrounded pretty much by water, but not the ocean. So we took them to Ocean City, Maryland. They played in the water, and my husband and I didn't care about it. So we walked on the boardwalk and very quickly decided we were not taking them to the boardwalk because there were these bright red t-shirts with big white letters that said, you're an American now, speak English. Thank you, I appreciate that groan. That's an insult. When we know from research that the more languages you speak, the brighter you are. So we should value it. But we have those kinds of stereotypes of prejudices. And as we include people in the positive way of understanding their preferences for differences in giving, we can help everyone, including our own organizations. What does a picture say to you? After you look at it, turn to your neighbor and whisper or talk out loud what this picture says to you. We make judgments quickly, don't we? And I'll be interested to, uh, we don't have time here because we're a large group, but a research group, here's what some of their answers were. And when I have used this with a smaller group where we can talk about it, one of the first things that people today zero in on is the burnous, the uh, headgear, because we are attuned to certain populations being terrorists. Is that kind of a perception a fair one? So as we look at this, and at this matter of giving, and I'm going to use the term fundraising, because as I've already mentioned, giving to church causes, giving to church, giving to secular causes today share characteristics. People's desire to know what their money does, to be involved, to have a say in what is happening at an organization that they believe in. So as we look at cultural differences, the first thing, and I'm going to try to give you just the beginning of this kind of learning, and you will have my email. If I can help you more specifically, please feel free to write to me. So the facts, the cultural traits, then awareness of your own. I can't tell you what it meant to me when I was able to return to my country that I left at age three in 1992, find out certain things about myself, find my relatives. So understanding ourselves is also important and then developing the specific skills and ultimately 
acquiring the cultural intelligence. And that does mean involvement with other populations, getting to know people, understanding, reading. I always get a kick out of some of the uses of English in other countries. And here's one example, and by the way, this is a book that some of you who are interested might want to look up. It's called Do's and Taboos Around the World. And there are, it's, they keep updating it, and there's also do's and taboos about using English, do's and taboos for professional women. So you might want to look up this whole do's and taboos series of books, but this is from do's and taboos. Look, Ali, if you folks will play ball with my team, we can split home run profits with double play efficiency. And you can see the puzzled look on the listener's face. And when I've done work in Japan, I've had people say, we don't understand you Americans. You eat lunch, you drink at the same time, you talk baseball and chew gum and do business all at the same time. We don't get it because silences over there are definitely acceptable. This one is my favorite one. Change the order. The American says scratch the potatoes. You can see what the interpretation is. And as I watched, of course as a kid I learned English pretty quickly, but as I watched my, especially my mother, struggle the rest of her life in understanding what some of the things are that we say in American English, I can certainly relate to this aspect. Even our emoticons are different in different cultures, showing, of course, some of the reserve, some of the economy of the Eastern Hemisphere, and understanding those kinds of differences, even to that point. So as we look at the scale of differences, where do we need to make the most effort for understanding? And I would be interested to hear how your perceptions, depending on your roots or your current country. So what I'd like to have us do is think outside the box. Now, certain cultures that I show this cartoon to, they don't get it. That's because it's very American. Think outside the box. So how do we talk to others? Do we have a respect even for some of these differences? I know when I came to America as a, about nine years old, one of the interesting things was for my parents to go shopping and understand sizes of things. We were, of course, refugees. We came with absolutely nothing. If any of you work with ACS or helping refugees, I certainly appreciate it to this day. But everything in the grocery store seemed super large or king size. Well, all we could afford was small, but there was no small. You know, even little cultural things like that we need to respect. How many faces do you see? You know, sometimes it looks like we all blend into one big population. But if you stop to look, my friends, look at the interesting differences. Here's one, another, another, there's one, there's an eye, another face, another one, there, 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 and I count the horse because I like animals. But 
sometimes it all becomes a blur, but every one of those faces deserves our respect, our attention. So as we turn now to the matter of giving, of generosity, of what affects giving in the United States by all the various cultural groups that I believe enrich this country, we need to think about the diversity because giving is a matter of including people. As I already mentioned, the number one reason when you look at research, and I'll be happy to send you that, is to make a difference. But if we don't include people, they don't have that satisfaction. And I don't have this in the PowerPoint, but I have a separate PowerPoint that I can share with you. And I want to bring this up today. You know how the Bible says it's more blessed to give than to receive? I'm sure some of you heard it when you were kids and didn't want to share, right? Well, we have, well, let me back up just a little. When I first went to the School of Philanthropy in 91, there was a major fundraiser who had been a Methodist preacher, and he wrote a book called Give to Live. Well, you know how it is in academe. If it's not researched, is it really worthwhile? And so we figuratively said, that's a nice, warm, fuzzy butt. Well, since that time, I have collected secular research. I'm, I'll share this with you if you want it. That proves, my friends, that people who are generous, they live longer, they're healthier, and they're happier. Say amen. Thank you. There's one more fact to tell you, volunteering. People who volunteer are 94% in a better mood. So if you know someone who gets out of the bed on the wrong side, see, that's a very American thing that I had to explain to my mother a couple times. Have them volunteer. It makes a difference for everyone. So. Let's take a look, first of all, as we look at ourselves, our self-awareness, and today we're developing a little bit of the cognitive knowledge, and then, if you haven't, or expand your interpersonal until you reach the professional skills. So I'm going to present to you some generalizations, and I'd like us to come back and have enough time, and Adi, help me stay on track, please have enough time to hear from you to discuss this. And Adi, would you mind seeing if there's another microphone that uh, maybe somebody out there could bring us so we could have a good discussion? So generalizations are not stereotyping. They are the beginning of understanding more knowledge, of digging deeper. But if we look at some of these generalizations with respect that they deserve, with the interest they deserve, it's a beginning of further understanding. So looking at some of the ways that we might be able to identify differences in giving. First of all, reciprocity. And this is one of the things that we have seen in the United States, which is called remittances, where people who come to this country will send back money to their country. This is generosity that is not always recognized through the tax 
uh, laws that we have or even some of the respect that we give, but it's a beginning of generosity. And the other thing we found is that if people give back to their countries, they are twice as likely to give to causes in this country. And maybe you've experienced the same thing, the matter of giving back. You know perfectly well I give to refugee organizations when I know about them because I've experienced it. Helping those in ways they themselves have been helped is a very common aspect of giving by minorities. Then caretaking responsibilities. I don't know of a single nursing home back in my country because people expect to take care of the elderly, of the sick, whatever it takes. So depending on what you're raising money for or what your church is raising money for, we have to keep some of these preferences in mind. Philanthropy is often viewed as a broader aspect. Now I have heard from uh, uh, some boards of American institutions that say, well, I give my time, you want my money too? Well, the answer is yes, of course. But we have to give respect to the fact that in some cultures, it is a far more defined, okay, I'm giving you my skill. And we have to respect that way of looking and be able to show people what does the money do. Once people are convinced in my long experience in this profession of fundraising, people will give, but we have to be clear what is the money used for? How does it help? Does it meet what you as a giver want to accomplish? Uh, donations, and in fact, we here in United States, we often talk about the anonymous donor. Well, that really is not true. In my long experience, I've had one anonymous donor, big one. People like to receive thanks, but the larger the gift, the more we need to respect what is it that you want as a donor, as a giver, out of this relationship. A few years ago, a woman in my profession became quite famous by writing a book called Donor-Centered Fundraising, and my first reaction was, well, duh, that's where the money comes from. But then I realized that most of us raise money because of what we want to do, what we need to do, what we are committed to doing, and we forget. What does the giver want? Whether the giver is to church project, to ASI organization, to a formal organization, what satisfies the donor? You know, there's, this is what's so interesting to me, combining my profession with being a wonderful preacher's kid. I don't mean me being wonderful. My dad was wonderful. Preacher's kid. People like to make a difference. It's satisfying. And when we combine so much of what the Bible says about giving and receiving, what interests me even more is how much of today's best practices in my profession reflect the Bible. Take a look at where they built the temple in Chronicles. You will see a model for today's capital campaign. The Bible is so full of such good advice 
especially where your heart is, there will your treasure be also, and where your treasure is, there will be your heart. So, records, variation on donor approaches, who wants to be asked in what way, and sometimes we make judgments, especially about use of technology. Well, my little country was in the forefront, is in the forefront of technology. By the way, how many of you use Skype? Uh, whenever you use Skype the next time, think of me, because Estonians invented it. Okay, uh, moving on quickly. Donor research. This is an interesting one because we need to know something about the donor's values, the donor who wants to, and this goes for church members too. What is their value system and how does it match? But then again, we need to realize that in many countries, when I first went to work back in the former Soviet Union, uh, which I was invited many times because people didn't want government money, and one thing that was very interesting was that when we talked about fundraising, we actually had to be careful of some of the language used. Because think back to KGB. I'm in America because the KGB wanted to kill my father. He was a church leader. Records, knowing something about you. So how do we keep it ethical and professional as we find out about the donor's preferences? Volunteering was another aspect from the former Soviet Union and probably some of your countries. Okay, we need to plant trees this weekend, so you're going to volunteer to go do that. If you don't, that's what I call the Soviet method of volunteering, and I'm pretty good at that. Okay. Um, Definitions of philanthropy differ. What does it really mean? So do we talk about generosity? Do we talk about uh, charitable giving? Do we talk about offerings? We need to understand how does that language translate. Community is very significant. When I grew up in South America, the idea of the plaza, people coming together, that kind of connectivity when I've been in some countries of Southeast Asia watching people gather on the seashore or something, that community can be used for a positive effect. Generational differences also matter. Generational differences are important depending how long a person has been in this country. Taxes, as you can see here, aren't very important in many cases because that's not a tradition from countries of origin. However, religion is one of the greatest motivators for giving. And cross-border giving, I appreciate the churches that have asked me to come and talk about cross-border giving because going back to the ultimate mission of your organization and because people want to give because they want to make a difference, is what we need to remember. Uh, mainstream organizations are sometimes not trusted or valued, because historically, sometimes we have kept people out of them. So we need to be careful how and what kind of organizations we present. Definitely perceptions of government and legal issues. One of the reasons that I was sent all over the globe in the early 90s was because the Soviet Union broke up. People didn't want 
government money, didn't want government interference. Same thing with many Latin American countries that were becoming democratized, being very aware of the joys and benefits of giving. We had an affiliate in Mexico City, Procura. So a growth in the early 90s is what we may be seeing the results. So as we summarize this part, direct informal support sometimes is what works best. But also, how do we invite people to be part of a common cause, part of a common vision that will help? Immediate need, and this is why planned giving is one of the most best opportunities that benefits the organization as well as the donor. And I mean this sincerely. My husband and I took in kids and accidentally created a family uh, it was uh, teenagers who had problems. That accounts for some of my gray hair. Don't tell them. I love them. But what am I saying? We didn't need to adopt them. But if both he and I pass away, these precious kids, and especially the grandkids they gave us, won't have anything. So we have a living trust. This is something we can share and yet in some cultures, a planned gift is like signing your own death certificate. So here is where we get to the very practical aspect, my friends. The practical aspect of how does it benefit the donor and how do we, as responsible organizations, and I have said this many times, I love coming to ASI because you fit the niches of life that the formal church cannot, and that's what I appreciate about you. And I wish I could donate to every one of you. But folks, like that picture, the donors are out there. You have to find them in the right way. So there is some distrust of traditional organizations as well as traditional ways of giving. Uh, philanthropic priorities or even the term is not always one that people relate to. And of course, the recency of immigration. Now I want to tell you one more thing before I go to the last part of this and we have a discussion. We think about America in three strata of giving or economic status. We have the wealthy, we have the major donors, and their habits of giving definitely have changed over the last 15 years. People with significant sums of money that where they want to make a difference, they frequently observe the organization. Bill Gates is a good example of this. Bill Gates wasn't ready to give for quite a while. And when he was ready to give, he developed his own causes. People watch, what are you doing? How well are you known? Or are you a little bit too humble? Think about that. Then we have the middle. And then we have the lower economic third. Do you know that we have a number of research studies that indicate that the lower third gives a larger percent than the middle? Remember the widow's mite? I've had people on both ends of the scale in my long experience say to me, it's about time you ask me. That's when I wonder about myself. So... Let's move on um, 
just a couple of warnings, then I want to talk about some of the things, and I have a lot of material here, and I'll share it rather than read all of it. But we need to think about the term philanthropy, about some euphemisms that if the language that we use about giving, whether it's philanthropy, whether it's any other language you use in requesting money for your causes, think about it. Language use is really very important. And I have a few warnings. I want to go back to the uh, tip of the iceberg. I hope you've seen it as a very positive and not as a way to make judgments. Now, let's delve deeper. Having worked with and lived with Hispanics most of my life, yes, we say the word Hispanics and it rolls off the tongue. But what about Mexicans versus Bolivians versus Chileans? And I just came from Colombia last week. There are those differences that we need to respect under that broad terminology. Uh, If differences aren't acknowledged, sometimes we make assumptions that are not valid. So it means that we have to do some code switching. Now, I like this term. It came from an article in Harvard Business Review, and I'm always interested that Harvard Business Review, every issue has something about working globally because that's become our way of life. So why don't we, with a faith base, take some of the same advice? So what do we mean by code switching? It's being able to adapt, being able to consider norms, ways that people like to support causes that are meaningful. Some of the best generosity I've experienced in my own life, besides when I was a refugee, was when my dad was given Hispanic churches in the bad part of Brooklyn, New York. And the members were Puerto Ricans, mostly blue-collar members, and I saw some of the finest generosity of my life. And I still appreciate it greatly. That was my context for growing up. So code switching is switching really important when we do that. The ability to modify, to accommodate, to manage some of the cultural differences. Now, I hope this book is going around. Uh, I have a chapter that is well-researched as well as the uh, information from experience, and it has sidebars from many of my colleagues and former students from around the world. And uh, this is the only volume of its kind that really looks at generosity in the most professional way. So let's go on to the last part and becoming a culturally proficient professional. Now these slides are more full than I normally would have them because I anticipated if you're very interested in this, I will send you this information and I encourage you to share it. But you have to email me and please remind me where we met because I go from one group to another to another. So remind me so I'll know which version to send you. We need to be careful about some of our assumptions. And that's why I say the tip of the iceberg is a beginning, but a positive beginning, my friends. Let's delve deeper. Now, some things about language. Any of you ever use Google Translate? Sometimes that is really hilarious. Look at this one. I'm tickled to death to be here in your country 
and it comes out as I scratched myself until I died to be here in your country. That's why we need to be careful with the use of language, including nonverbal communication. I have uh, on YouTube, there is a clip that I don't have time, but I can tell it to you, that talks about the differences in nonverbal communication and what it means. So when you are in another country or working with people recently from another country, the best thing is to not use a lot of hand signals. Can be a little bit dangerous. Uh, also some of the cliches. You'll have to pardon my voice, I've got a frog in my throat. And I can really relate to this, my friends, because I watched my own parents. And I had to learn this when I was a kid, but you know, kids take it a little bit differently. Looks like it's going to rain cats and dogs. Well, that really brings up an image, doesn't it? So, respect for differences. Knowing more than one language. Time has different meaning. Some years ago, I had the privilege of teaching people from UNICEF, and it was a real hardship gig. I was in Paris, and we had about 45 people from about 20-some countries, and the countries were as different as Finland and Ecuador. And the time difference was really interesting. We had to be very flexible and adjust because there are some very concrete aspects of time, just as one example of differences. Names. Uh, I have an amusing little piece that uh, I found about what do different countries find out about Americans. One thing was Americans always use nicknames. Why can't we just say Michael? Why is it Mike? You know, those kinds of things. And this is very, very common. So if we apply that same kind of cultural characteristics to other populations, it might even be offensive. Things like a business card. I have been in countries where writing on a business card is the same as defacing. So we have to be very careful with some of these little things that we take for granted sometimes. Um, Another aspect is gender and age. I've been in some cultures where the fact that I have gray hair is highly respected. Uh, in other cultures, I was working once in Azerbaijan, and even some of the homeless women found a way to color their hair, so I was really an anomaly, and I stood out. We have to understand that some of these are important to the person understand some of these differences about age. In some cultures where I've worked, they have no problem coming up to me and saying, how old are you? Uh, please don't do that when we're done. Uh, professional courtesies, I, uh, the gift giving is an interesting thing that we have to be conscious of. I once was working with somebody, actually it was down here in Florida from another culture. We went to lunch at a mall. We were gonna make it quick and cheap. And as I walked in, I saw this beautiful poster of a wolf peering from behind a tree. And I happened to like wolves. And I said, oh, my goodness, look, isn't that beautiful? Next thing I know, he had it framed and gave it to me while I was flying home. That was a bit of a problem. So understanding the courtesies of gift giving really is very important. 
here in the Arab countries, do not admire an object openly. You may be the recipient of it. Uh, identity, please don't ask an Estonian if they speak Russian. Now, Russians are lovely people, but you know what it means to us immediately is 50 years of horrible, horrible repression where a third of our country died. So even if many of my relatives speak, well, they all speak Russian, they don't admit it. Same thing with some of the other countries. I have a dear friend who's Eritrean, but even though they've split off from Ethiopia, there's a sensitivity there. So knowing our geography, knowing some of the background is very important. So to close this part so that we can launch into your questions and comments, and we did get another microphone. Thanks, Derek. Uh, one of my dear friends and my colleagues at the School of Philanthropy, unfortunately, he's deceased now, I thought this acrostic was a beautiful one for us to remember. We first of all, we start with respect for the individual. We move to including the individual or the groups, which means we have to increase our understanding, our respect. And we move from there to including people in the causes that mean something to them. That's been one of the beautiful parts of my profession. Never mind all the fundraiser jokes that my brother and others can think of. It takes money to carry out good causes. And I am sure each of your causes deserves that. And I'm just as sure because of my experience that you can expand your donor base by adopting some of these principles. So to conclude, Sometimes our cultural differences impede our communication, which of course leads to generosity, to giving. Uh, some rules are taken for granted, and I know we in the United States, the longer a person is here, takes for granted those rules, but we need to be conscious of them. Be observant, ask the appropriate questions, and above all, don't forget to see the person behind all this. Can you see the person? Isn't this a beautiful example of how it can get confusing, but above all, the person behind it. So, enjoy the journey. Now, your questions, your comments, your experiences. I hope that you've been thinking about it. And here's a hand, Derek, if I could ask you to run around with a, oh, Audie has the microphone. And I trust that you've gotten my card if you need it. I hope that the book is still going around. Yes, sir. Okay, yeah, thanks for your insightful seminar. I guess I do have a question more from a donor perspective. I've, I've been involved twice as a donor uh, giving, and I was kind of surprised, I was kind of blindsided by an aspect of the recipient that really surprised me, which is that there's a, a level of suspicion sometimes of donors giving and tying the donation to certain objectives or what. So just use an example. I was involved in donating to our local library where I, where I, I am, and, and I tied a donation to the location that they were going to, because they're having difficulty making a decision. I thought I'd help them. And I, I got a lot of trouble out of it because it was seen politically high-handed. 
And I'm currently involved in my church trying to help them acquire a building. And I, get it, I thought it was uh, something on the community, but it's in the church as well. Uh, there's an immediate imputing of motives and a sense of wanting to control things from donors. How do you, how do you, how do you kind of keep that straight? Uh, one of the, the things, that, and this goes back to the professionalism of how do we do it. Excuse me. One of our adages in the philanthropic service for institutions, which, by the way, is a unique office. There is no other office like that in any other division or any other church. Uh, so I am grateful to the North America Division that for quite some time they have funded this kind of, a, it's almost a complete consulting service. We don't raise the money for you, but no uh, consultant does. We help you find your right donors. Uh, this goes back to some of the aspects that we talk about that, first of all, there's got to be a plan. And it isn't just for the pastor or one leader or so forth. There has to be at least a small committee of consensus that's put this together. Otherwise, you have people running away with all kinds of parts of your uh, project or campaign. Uh, and it isn't just one dictator. So that's why having a plan where you can say, okay, what you want us to do, what you're saying, it may be good, but let's measure it to see how is it working against what we have already decided. That's why when you begin, let's say, a campaign in a church, you should have a plan that has, first of all, had the input of a small group that has been shared with a larger group, and then by means of communications and committees, people have a buy-in into what you do. That keeps it from running away with you. I remember one time I was helping a humane society, and uh, they needed a wing, and there was a woman who said, uh, I'll give you X amount of money if you name the wing after me. Uh, well, the more they delved into it, they realized that this was, first of all, something in her will, and unless she had a catastrophic illness or an accident, she wasn't going to die for another 20 years. And so this whole thing started to run away with itself. So they had to have policies about naming opportunities. So that goes back to some of the just the very basic uh, management theories, which is have a plan that you can point to. If somebody comes to you and says, okay, I'm going to give you X amount of money. If you'll do this, I'll do this for you, if so forth. Sit down and talk with them. There may be a good reason for it. I've actually seen organizations change some of their plans because they hadn't thought of something. But the most important thing is to not let something run away with it because you don't have that structure against which to measure. Thank you. Next question. Comment, experience, perspective. See, you have four choices now. There's one right there. I had a... A gentleman come to me and wanted to donate a lot of money, but the money came with a lot of demands. So I contemplated whether I should receive the money or not. And after time, I chose not to receive it. And he got very angry, um, really angry to a point that he started contacting other people. Um, eventually it passed, but 
what would you say would be a better way um, to deal with something like that? Because his, his, his money donation came with a lot of dictatorship and wanting a place on the board. And I, I didn't think that his, um, re his reason mainly for being involved was the money, not necessarily the vision. And, um, and so it caused a lot of hassle for about six months. So what would you respond to that? Sometimes that really does get tricky. Um, I had a similar experience where I had a major donor who wanted to give to something we really didn't need. There wasn't a problem with the source of the money. Now that's another thing that we get into. And I could show you some of the ethics decision-making processes because it isn't a clear-cut answer. But in his case, it was just something that was not a priority for the organization and his demands. So what we did, and this wasn't just, of course, my decision. It was also the rest of administration on the board. Uh, we created a similar program that we did need explained it to him, and then he was happy to give to that because we respected at least part of what his desire for giving is. It's not an easy thing to do uh, because I know one time when I was much younger, there was a person, uh, this was when I was at an Adventist college, who wanted to uh, give us land in uh, color, Colorado. Now, what's your image of land in Colorado? Thank you, beautiful mountains and all that. So first thing I had to do was check where is this land. And I found out it was in the foothills, so that was okay. But then I did some economic investigation and I found out that it would cost us more to maintain that land until we could sell it. And it just it wasn't feasible, especially for our current financial situation at that institution. So I was younger, dumber, still had brown hair. And so I simply told her, I'm sorry, we can't take it. She hated me. And that was my first lesson, seriously, my friends. And why do people give? What's their desire? What's my role in respecting the giver? So what I did at that time, I did turn a bad situation into a relatively good one. I had the right people stay in touch with her. I had the president for sure send regular emails. I had people down where she lived visit her. And three years later, she gave us a sizable gift in terms of technology. So that was a hard lesson because I felt bad because I had hurt her feelings. And it taught me a valuable lesson is that uh, don't obfuscate, don't tiptoe around it, but be sure you have your facts straight, be sure you're the right person to tell her that information. Ethics is another thing. I had a situation where there was an Adventist hospital, I think it was Adventist, that one that was going to get a gift from uh, a Native American tribe because they were so grateful because of how that hospital treated them. And you know, Native Americans have been 
badly abused population in this country. So uh, then they found out that, well, okay, any major donation that would come from Native Americans would be mostly casino money. Uh, there we get into another issue. So how do you name a Christian hospital with the name of the casino on the wall? Well, there were two things that ameliorated that. One was they honored the tribe. They put the tribe name on the building. The second thing was that a committee got together, and this astonished me, because there were a bunch of pastors in there, and they, I mean, I thought I knew my Bible as being close to my dad and being a preacher's kid, but they came up with example after example in the Bible where the Lord's work was accomplished with money offered to idols. How did they build the temple in the wilderness, my friends? Where did that money come from? Now, it isn't as simple as clear-cut as that. Sometimes image matters. Sometimes there are other issues related. But that was an interesting lesson for me. You know, we did, I wasn't involved except as an advisor, uh, they did honor the tribe in the right way with the right kind of ceremony. But then also some of this research into the biblical principles really helped people understand the value of respecting the donor. So you started a long train there. I could go on and on. But I think there's a question back here from my friend in Chile. He's back there. Oh, okay. Uh, I would like to uh, introduce to you there. Here's a gentleman from our university in Chile. And here, Constantin, stand up, please. Here's one from our university in Kyrgyzstan. I worked with him very recently. Yes. Microphone. Um, before anything, I want to say thank you. I'm also translator, so I'm just going to be talking to him, and he's very excited to be here. So his English isn't too well, and that's why I'm here. In Chile, we've been using all of the, um, all of the ideas that you have actually promoted and that he's learned from you. Y sin lugar a dudas, resume muy bien la presentación que hemos visto en esta mañana. And it's actually a pretty good uh, resume from, from your presentation today. Más que una pregunta, quisiera dar un agradecimiento. And it's not really a question, but I would like to say how grateful I am to you. Por tu ministerio y por la ayuda que ha sido para nosotros en Chile. To your ministry and all the help that you have been in Chile. Hoy ya estamos avanzando en tres líneas de ministerio. Salud. Comunicaciones y educación. Uh, today in Chile, we've actually had major advances in health, communication, and education. Agradecemos mucho toda tu ayuda y esperamos que todos se lleven tu libro. Es muy bueno. And we're so blessed for your help, and we hope gracias. everyone buys your book. Muchas gracias. Bueno. I appreciate your good words. But the point is, folks, here, here's the funny thing, as I travel a great deal, and uh, 
I, I'm very extroverted, I'm sure you can tell, but I sit down next to somebody in the airplane and we accidentally make eye contact. Boy, she's got good eye contact. Uh, so we start chatting, and the first thing we talk about is the weather, you know, when you meet a stranger. And uh, did you notice that rain last night? Were you here? That It was a downpour. That's typical for Florida. I used to live here. You know, this kind of chit-chat. Okay, then if we keep the conversation going, the next thing that people talk about is, what do you do? So she looks at me and says, what do you do? And um, she looks really interesting. So I say to her, I work for the nonprofit sector. And that's a lot of mystery for even Americans because, wait a minute, we're a capitalist society. What do you mean? You can't make a profit? So that's good conversation. Or I want to impress her, so I say, I'm a teacher or a trainer. That makes me sound noble. But now I think of all the work I have on that little gadget there and all the things I have to do while flying. So I don't want to talk to her anymore, but I don't want to insult her. So when she says to me, what do you do? I have this pause and then very enthusiastically I say, I'm a fundraiser. And that gives me the peace and quiet I need. <laughs> Why do we have that attitude? First of all, fundraising is biblical. It really is. And I have, by the way, that reminds me, we have several editions of a handbook, a fundraising handbook. You can get them through Advent Source. And there is, in I think, three out of the four, we have a Canadian edition and we have a Spanish edition. Uh, there is a chapter on the biblical foundations for fundraising. And there's also in the, the second edition of it, which is more for churches and pastors, we have a chapter in there about Ms. what Mrs. White said about giving, about fundraising. And uh, I would encourage you to take a look at that. Naughty also had the presence of mind to give you a flyer about the course we have through the Adventist Learning Community. Uh, we encourage you to take a look at it. If you do the whole thing, it doesn't matter. If you use it as a buffet of fundraising knowledge, you can do that too. Uh, I do want to say uh, that we do exist to serve you. Uh, please check out our website. You have it on my card. There are good materials there. There are webinars on there. Uh, feel free to contact us at the number. And uh, we will do everything from advise you to help you know how to find your donors, what criteria, where to look for them. And if you have a campaign going, we will come on site. We prefer if you bring people together and uh, uh, have a meet, make a meeting out of it because we do have a lean budget, of course. So we do exist to help you. I admire the causes. Then from here, I'll be headed down to the exhibits, but I always enjoy that because you really do fit the niches of life. And uh, I remember very well, it was a Dorcas Society that outfitted my family when we came to America with nothing. And I still remember there were these cute little blue bunny slippers that, oh, did I want them, but my feet were too big. So I encourage you to continue your wonderful work. Uh, feel free to write me if you want this PowerPoint. The only thing I request is please don't go out and make a living with my PowerPoint. 
use it to share discreetly internally as your own base of information and I can always give you additional suggestions and check out the website. So, thank you for being with me. I uh, wish you all the best. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.